So the 30, uh, our series in the Psalms, uh, we like to do this every summer. It's kind of a nice way to take a break from our normal routine, our normal pattern of going verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. As you know, the Psalms is one of those books that's not uh, told necessarily in chronological order, but it's a bunch of collections of different hymns and different praises and different worship uh, songs that the people of Israel had recorded and that they looked to for hope and for comfort. And so the, this, 34th, this 34th Psalm uh, was written by David. Um, and you'll notice uh, if you have a little footnote in your Bible at the top, it says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. And we'll talk more about that as we get into uh, kind of the context of what David is exactly being saved from in this moment. But this psalm is one that I think is going to awaken your soul to God. It's going to uh, drive your heart closer to him. It's going to encourage you in the power and the sovereignty of God. And it's one that I think is going to uh, find encouragement for all of you if your spirit is needing encouragement from the Lord. If you know what it's like to be in a dry place, in a dry season with the Lord, or if you know what it's like to face uh, trials and sufferings and hardships for your faith in Christ, this psalm and what David goes through is for you. Okay? The psalms teach us not to just command our actions and our behavior. Okay? Christ commands more than our actions and our behavior. He commands our heart and he commands our emotions as well. And so the psalm here not only exhorts us to uh, line up our emotions and our heart with God, but it also exhorts us to uh, have our joy and our comfort and our peace to be found in him as well. So as we look at the psalm, I want you to see five different things with me in here. Okay? And these are going to be pretty much in line with the stanzas in the psalm. So the first one that I want you to see is David's worship. That's going to be the first stanza. Then I want us to see David's experience, so the context of what he found himself in. And then we're going to see David's exhortation to all believers, all the saints who worship Christ. And uh, we're going to see David's application of how that truth of Christ actually lands itself on the ground. And then finally, we're going to see David's confidence, which is ultimately found in God, his king. So first, let's take a look at David's worship, uh, which we see here in the first verse of the psalm. So David is the great songwriter, and he is going to say, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And when he says here, I will bless the Lord at all times, this is a commandment that we see is similar to what Paul exhorts the Christians to in the New Testament. He says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say, rejoice. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, you have uh, Peter, after he has been uh, beaten uh, by the high priest. So they are delivered before the Sanhedrin. They're asked to repent of their testimony as Jesus Christ is their Lord. And then they are sent away after they've been beaten and punished because they say that they're not going to do that. They're going to continue to testify that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior and that he's the one who resurrected from the dead and he's the one from which they get their power. And so they, the Sanhedrin beat them and then they send them away and they tell them to not, not preach that gospel anymore. And then Peter walks away from that experience and it says, with rejoicing and praising God that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. And so this is a little bit what, Paul, what David is talking about here when he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. Because we know if you've lived life for any period of time, that all times is a really high command from God. How could you possibly rejoice, God, rejoice in God, rejoice in the Lord at all times? Another encouragement for you is in Acts chapter 16, you find Paul and Silas in prison. And it says, it starts off with Paul and Silas in prison. It says, and it was late in the night when they were singing praises and hymns to God. And that is during the suffering. During the suffering, before they've been delivered, they're rejoicing constantly in the Lord. And that's the kind of praise 
that David is talking about here. It says, His praise shall be continually in my mouth, not just in his heart. This is not just an inward reality or an inward truth. He says it'll be on his mouth. And we know that out of the overflow of the heart is how the mouth speaks. And he continues, he says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. So now here, David, before he says, I will bless the Lord outwardly, he has to preach first and foremost to his own heart. And that's why we do our devotions in the morning. We have to preach this message of truth constantly to our own hearts and to our own minds. He says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. As a Christian, you can boast in a whole lot of things. The only thing that is worthy of boasting in, though, is the Lord. You can boast in your own pride, your own accomplishments, your own ability to sustain yourself from sin, your own ability to get things done at work, your job, your career, your friendships, the kind of car you drive, the kind of house you live in, the kind of accomplishments you've had. But the only thing that David says his soul boasts in is the Lord. And that's Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which is the covenant name for Yahweh. It says, let the humble hear and be glad. The humble is someone who ultimately does boast in the Lord. Someone who boasts in the Lord is someone who cannot boast in themselves because they find themselves to be completely bankrupt and completely empty. And then he continues here with the, the refrain, which is, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So now after preaching to his own heart and to his own soul, he turns to the people and he says, Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And it says here to magnify the Lord. And so what does it mean really to magnify the Lord? It doesn't mean to make him look larger than he actually is. You know, if you use a magnifying glass, you can take small things and make them begin to look bigger than they actually are. If you take a magnifying glass and you point it at an ant, the ant looks larger than it is in reality. But it's not possible to make God look larger than he actually is. To magnify the Lord is to begin to bring him to the size of which he actually is more like in reality. Because you can never make God any bigger than he actually is. In fact, it would be impossible for a human to overestimate and to overmagnify God. When we magnify the Lord, we are more close to the reality of what God is actually like. We are more close to the actual glory of who Christ is. And the right response to magnifying and zooming in on God is to praise him. If you see God in his magnified form and you begin to bring him out and draw him into your life and see him more like he actually is, the right response is to exalt his name, not on your own in the private of your house, which you should do, but ultimately in the congregational worship of the church. That means in your relationships with other believers, in your household, around the dinner table, with all the relationships that you have. That means at work, even in a hostile environment, which David is in at this moment, he's actually hiding in a cave at this point in time. He says, let us exalt his name together. That's the fitting response that David has. Just to give you an example of what it looks like to magnify the Lord at all times, there's a, a Marian martyr. If you guys don't know Bloody Mary, she was famous for the persecution of the Protestants uh, of, the, of the early church during the Reformation. And there was a Marian martyr who was trapped in prison and he had this famous quote. He said, If the queen be pleased to release me, I will thank her. If, she's imprison, if she will imprison me, I will thank her. And if she will burn me, I will thank her. That is what it looks like to praise the Lord at all times. 
at all times, regardless of the outcome, regardless of the response, regardless of what people will do to you, because trust me, people will seek to put enmity between you and them because Jesus Christ says that peace with God is enmity with the world. And now we're going to move on from David's rightful worship and we're going to see where this worship is founded, which is in David's experience. If you look with me at verse 4, it says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. David's worship that we've seen in the first three verses is not some unfounded, irrelevant idea. This is based on his tangible, real-life experience that he has had with the Lord. He says, I sought the Lord. And you know that if you're seeking God, typically it's because you need God. The flesh is not one that wants us to seek after God. And so there's two things that drive us to seek after the Lord. One is wisdom, and the other is necessity. And David here is driven to seek the Lord out of necessity. And we see here, it says, and he answered me. The Lord God is faithful, not only to hear us out, but also to answer us. But the question there is, how does he answer David? Because David says he answered him, and he says then in the next line, and delivered me from all my fears. Delivering someone from their fears is a higher kind of deliverance. If you're delivered from your circumstance, that only saves you until the next time you're in that same circumstance. If you have the fear of man, and God delivers you from a circumstance in which the fear of man is pressed on you, he saves you until the next time you are put in a situation where you are then again tempted to fear man. But to remove the fear of man is a higher kind of deliverance. He says that he delivered me from my fears, which is that he rescues him from the fear that he struggles with, from the very fear that drives David to not worship God, from the very fear that drives David. And by the way, for David, it is the fear of man. He delivers him from all his fears. This is David's experience. And this is after he's been delivered from Saul, after he's been delivered from Abimelech. And by the way, this is worth noting. If you read this story in uh, 1 Samuel, it says that David, at this moment in time, goes to Achish. That's the name of the king. And here we have the name as Abimelech. That's not a contradiction in the Bible. Abimelech is most likely a title for the kings of Gath. Just like Pharaoh is a title for the Egyptian kings. Just like Caesar is a title for the Roman kings. Achish is the name of the king. And Abimelech is most likely his kingly title. It means like father king over Gath. So then he says, those who look to him, those who look to God, are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. For me, this immediately brings to mind something we just read on that M. Shane plan, which is Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. And it says, those who look to him are radiant. David is saying that this experience, by the way, is not unique to him. His delivered from, him being delivered from his own fears, that's not a unique experience to David's life. It's not an isolated incident. David says that he is delivered and that all those who look to him will be radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. To look to the Lord is to not be put to shame. And then he continues in verse 6. He says, This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. That is all his troubles. That means his past troubles. That means his present troubles. And he's certainly also talking about his future troubles as well. David is saying he is a poor man when he cries out to God. 
And I want you to know that you are a poor man too when you cry out to God. You cannot come to God as a haughty and mighty person having all this pride, all this built up stuff. Our poverty is the very thing that qualifies us to go before the Lord and to ask Him for help. And the guarantee of God is that He is a refuge and a shelter and a strong foundation for the believer. And He says that He will save him out of all his troubles. That means Christ Jesus has rescued you from all of your past sins. That means Christ Jesus has rescued you from all of your present trials, your present troubles, and your present circumstances. And that means certainly that he will deliver you from all future sins that you will participate in, all of the future circumstances you will be faced with, and all of the future sufferings that you are going to endure. Because one promise for the believer is that you will suffer. Christ Jesus suffered, and we will suffer as well if we walk rightly in his footsteps. Verse 7 continues, The reason that we are rescued out of the troubles is that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and the angel of the Lord delivers them. The angel of the Lord could refer to two things. This could be talking about actually Jesus Christ, the covenant angel of the Lord, who actually fulfills all of these promises. But it could also just be generally, generally referring to an angel that God has sent specifically to watch over David. The reality, though, is that heaven and earth are not separate realities. The supernatural and the spiritual world are mingled together. We can't see it. We talked about this last week, that there is a natural world and there's a supernatural world. And we are very dead and blind to the supernatural world, to the spiritual realm. But that doesn't mean it's not interacting with the, spiritual, the, with the natural realm. And so here, the, our encouragement as a believer is, even though we can't see the safety that God is providing for us, we can trust in the fact that he does provide for us, that he actually sends angels to protect us. He actually watches over us. Not only is he present with us, but he's also powerful to put a hedge of protection around the believer. And this is why when we pray, we can pray with confidence that the Lord would protect us, preserve us, to take care of us, to watch over us. All of those things are things that we can pray for, not because we are creatures who desire comfort, although that is true, but also because God promises us that he will protect us. And so we're moving now from David's worship and the experience of David's worship into David's exhortation. And now he's going to turn to his audience and he's going to say, this is what I want you to do in a response to my experience and to the worship that is rightly fitting for God. He says in verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. God commands us not only to see that he is good, off from a distance. He doesn't say, observe that I am good. David doesn't tell us to watch and look back at Jesus in history and see that he died on the cross, but he calls us to taste that God is good, which means that God's goodness is not only something to be seen and recorded, but also experienced for the believer. The goodness of God is something that you taste. You don't just eat it. You don't just consume it. You don't just put it down. You taste it. It's palatable. You mull it over. You enjoy it. It is a sweet goodness that you can enjoy. He invites us not only to see it, because seeing is not good enough. He says, I want you to taste the very goodness of God. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then the third exhortation in this text, so we have the verbs taste and see God's goodness, and then the third one is a strange one which is, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The fear of the Lord is one of those topics that is really difficult for us to talk about in the modern world 
because we really have no conception of how to fear God rightly. We don't know what it means to fear God. We are not people who are reverent towards a holy God. But he specifies the people who are to fear God by saying, all you his saints. Saints is a strange word here in the Hebrew. It's actually saying holy, the same holy that is used to describe God. Which means this is the holy people, the people who are set apart for God. Those are the people who are called to fear him. Which means to fear the Lord is a unique trait that is gifted to the believer. So what is the fear of the Lord? Well, we talked earlier about how David is delivered from his fears. Fears that would tempt him to sin, tempt him to bow down to man, tempt him to uh, not actually be reverent and obedient to God. But he says here, fear the Lord. There is a great safety in fearing God. There is a safety in knowing that what this world threatens you with is not as bad as what God can do. And God is safe and powerful and mighty. And so you should fear God rather than man. Because what the world tries to do is it tries to induce fear in you to make you obey it. And it tries to get you out of your career if you speak against it. And it tries to ruin you and take away relationships and strip away all the things that you hold dear if you seek to spit in the face of the modern world. But God says, fear him, not man. To fear man is to fear a temporary master, one who's a hard laborer, one who will continue to drive you into further and further bondage and slavery and continue to drive you hard in that direction. But to fear God is to take an easy yoke upon you. To fear God is to look at a holy, righteous, and ultimately perfect God who is a perfect master, a perfect king, a perfect ruler, and that is who we are called to fear. So not only are we called to taste God, to see his goodness, but we're also called to fear him because a right fear of God will always outweigh a fear of the world. A right fear of God will always drive us as believers to do things that we otherwise in our flesh don't want to do. Our flesh wars against us and tries to tempt us and convince us that God is not one who ought to be feared. As Satan did in the garden with Eve, he says, don't listen to God. He doesn't know what he's talking about. That's good for you. But to fear the Lord is to respond rightly. And what Eve should have done is in a right fear of Lord said, he wouldn't lie to me. He's a good God. I've tasted and I've experienced his goodness. And in matter of fact, I don't fear you, serpent. I fear God. And so I will continue to be obedient to God. And then he continues here by saying that those who fear the Lord will have no lack. And you read that correctly. He says, no lack. That means the believer has a sure confidence that they will lack no thing. There is nothing that the Christian will lack. The lie of the enemy in the Garden of Eden was that, that God is not actually good, that to find full fulfillment, to have no lack, is to go away from God and to chart your own course. And that's really no course at all because God had a safety and a protection around Adam and Eve in the garden. And they bought into the lie. And the world continues to try to tell the believer this lie, that actually to be outside of God, to be outside of a covenant marriage relationship is where you'll find sexual satisfaction. To be outside of God, to be outside of his safety, his obedience, his laws, his statutes, that's where you will find joy and fulfillment. But I'm here to tell you that the world is empty in all of its promises. And those who fear the Lord are the ones who have no lack. 
those who fear the Lord are the only ones who have full, final, and ultimate satisfaction in all things, regardless of what the world tells you. And he goes on to tell us in verse 10 that it is actually the young lions who suffer want and hunger. The young lions is a euphemism. It's a picture for people who are powerful, who can get what they want, and they are independent on their own. And they can, it looks like, take whatever they want. It is referring to the powerful people in this world who are able to, it seems like, get whatever they came for. They can go and they can get it, and they abuse their power, and they use their power, and they're going to influence you with their power. And it says, God is good. Those who fear God have no lack. The young lions are the ones who suffer want and hunger. Those are the ones who suffer and who actually are not satisfied, who actually are not full. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So there's a few options if you lack something that you've been praying about. One is you actually haven't been praying about it. You've been thinking about it, but you haven't been taking it before the Lord. That is why you could lack something. The other reason is that it's not actually a good thing for you. It says they will lack no good thing. And the third reason is that you're not seeking the Lord for it. That you're seeking it on your own terms, according to what you want, and on your conditions. And it says those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. And then we continue here with David's exhortation. Now he turns and he gets real practical because all theology, all doctrine is practical. And David, being the good preacher that he is, is going to drive this point home to the people. And in verse 11 he says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? And the answer to that is every single man and every single woman who has ever existed desires a good life to experience good things and to enjoy a happy existence. Who doesn't want that? We've been created for that. What man is there that desires life? The response, if you desire a good life, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Verse 14, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. All the references here actually come out of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3. through 3. Peter references this again in verses 9 and 11 of that same chapter. And again in verses 20-23 through 23 of that same chapter all of them being the practical, on-the-ground application that he is driving home. Peter says, if you have truly tasted God, you would actually want spiritual doctrinal nutrition. You wouldn't want to feel good. You'd want the truth about reality, not some mocked-up version of what the world is like. Peter says that if you have truly tasted God, you will not speak deceit. Your tongue will not lie. You will not slander other people. Because you have tasted the goodness of God and you know who you are and who God is. And so out of fear of the Lord, you will speak reverently about all of his saints and about his bride and about his church. And so as a people, we are to war against speaking evil things. This is something that our culture accepts as a common thing that Christians can do and get away with. In fact, in the Christian church, I think there's so very few sins that go unnoticed. But this is one of them. This is what I would call uh, as Justin has said it, this is a, an okay sin. It's an acceptable sin. But we are commanded to keep our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking deceit. And the exhortation is not to toe the line between deceit 
and evil, he says, turn away from evil and do good. And not only turn away from evil, but you should seek after peace and pursue after peace. Because if you don't seek after it, peace will not find you. You need to seek after peace. You don't need to just turn away from evil. You need to seek after the peace that God offers. So that is the application that David offers us here. In fact, I would like to turn over there to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we'll be in verses 20 through 23. 1 Peter chapter 2. right at the end of your Bible. In verse 20 of this chapter, Peter starts off by saying this. He says, For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure... This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 22. He, being Christ, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Ultimately, in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, all of these things are true. That Jesus Christ, who has gone before us, has set the example for us. So as believers, when we imitate Christ, we walk forward in the very goodness of God and we say that we are not going to slander people because Christ Jesus, when he was scorned as a sinless man, did not speak ill of anyone. When he was without any sin in him, when he suffered injustice, he was completely silent. And you and I who do sin and people speak evil of us, we still seek to defend our cause. We still seek to defend our reputation. And yet no person can speak more ill of us than what is actually true about the reality of who we are. And yet we still seek to defend ourselves. But Christ Jesus, who was the perfect, sinless Son of God, was quiet because he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And ultimately, for Christ Jesus, that meant he was delivered up to be crucified. He, he bore the full weight of the wickedness of the world. And you and I will never bear that kind of wickedness because Christ Jesus already did. And so he commands us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ Jesus. That we as Christians who've been bought with the blood of Christ are not to be those who are speaking evil, speaking deceit, doing no good thing. We are taught to turn away and to love God. Which means very practically that whatever sin you are flirting with right now, whatever sin you are considering, whatever is present in your life as an opportunity for sin, flee that sin. We are to wage war against the sin. Because our flesh is weak, but the spirit is able and powerful to overcome the wickedness of our bodies. Paul says that we are supposed to fight against our own sin, against our own flesh, and he calls us to wage a war. 
In Romans chapter 7, he talks about how the very thing that he wants to do, he can't do, and the thing that he can't, he doesn't want to do, that is the very thing that he keeps on doing. What a wretched man he is. Who will rescue him? Thanks be to God that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You and I have been bought with a price, and so we are called to honor God with our bodies. And that includes our tongue, that includes all aspects of our bodies, that includes our mind, that includes our heart, what you focus on, what you fixate on, what you think about, all of it is God's. And very practically, that means that at the very least, your tongue is a very good indicator of where your heart is at. So keep yourself from speaking deceit, knowing that without the very power of Christ, the Holy Spirit, you cannot keep yourself from speaking deceit. Verse 15, David is going to, through the end of this psalm, close out with the very confidence of what all righteous people have. He says, verse 15, the reason we do all of the aforementioned things is because the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. Know that when you get on your knees to pray before the Lord, his eyes are towards you and his ears are hearing you. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. There is people who will cry out empty phrases to the Lord, but they are not righteous. The Lord will not hear their cry. But you and I, as believers, this is why it's so important for us to intercede on behalf of those who we know are not believers, because the Lord doesn't hear their cry, but he hears us when we plead for them. The righteous people are the one who the Lord hears. So as believers, we pray for unbelievers, because the Lord hears us and he listens to us. But non-believers, the Lord does not listen to. In fact, it says the Lord puts his face against those who do evil. As you and I were before we were bought with Christ, before we were purchased again to him, you and I were the rebels who did evil. And the reality is there was nothing that we were going to get that we did not deserve. Because ultimately those who do evil when the Lord sets his face against them, that is realized on the day of judgment when he says he will cut off the memory of them from the earth. And that is not an injustice on God's part. That is not an unfair thing that he does. God is good, faithful, and just. And we are to taste and see that the Lord is good in all of his attributes, which includes his judgment of the wicked. But that means you and I should not let wicked people go to that seat of judgment without fair warning. Don't let the fear of man drive you to not share the gospel with your neighbor. Don't let the fear of man drive you to not share Jesus Christ with every single person you know. In fact, you should annoy them with how much you talk about Jesus. Because the reality is it's better for them to be annoyed and to reject Christ than for them to get on the seat of judgment one day and you have to stand and watch them judge before the holy God and know that you didn't share Christ with them. If sinners are going to go to hell, as Spurgeon says, let them go to hell with us begging them and pleading them with us wrapped around their legs trying to drag them up to heaven. But you and I are called to share Christ faithfully. That's what we're called to do. And the way we can do that is to not fear man, but to fear God. Because God ultimately is the only one who is to be feared. Jesus says, don't fear him who can destroy your body, but can do no more after that. He says, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And as Christians, this is not something to be taken lightly. To share the gospel is not something that is optional for believers. The obedience of sharing the gospel is the difference between life and death. Because the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. But Jesus Christ freely offers his salvation 
to all who would believe on him. And verse 17 is true as well. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. As a believer, when you cry to Jesus for help, he will heal you out of all your troubles. When you cry to God for endurance, for perseverance, for strength, for encouragement, for steadfastness, for perseverance, he delivers you out of all your troubles. And again, this is why we pray as believers, because Christ Jesus hears us and he intercedes for us and he is the advocate for us before the Father. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Earlier, it says that the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. And here it says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. So we get a little picture of what it looks like to be righteous. That's not our own righteousness. That is Christ's righteousness because the brokenhearted are the ones who get Christ's righteousness. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Those who are brokenhearted, those who are crushed, those are the ones who go before the Lord humbly and ask for forgiveness, who ask for salvation, who are like that tax collector who don't even look to heaven but beat their breasts and say, God, forgive me, a sinner. And then in verse 19, this is a reality for Christians. Verse 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. That's a true statement. As a believer, you will have many afflictions. This is David writing, and he's not off in fairyland talking about tasting the goodness of God. He's talking about an on-the-ground reality of the pain that you're going to suffer as a believer. And many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord delivers him out of them all. Luke chapter 21. We have to turn there. I wrote it down. I wasn't going to turn there, but we're going to go there. Luke 21 and verse 10. Jesus foretells of the coming persecution of Christians. And he says in verse 14, Settle it therefore in your minds and do not meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And that was true. He delivered that to the apostles. And that is, by the way, still true for believers today. And he says in verse 16, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. Some of you, they're going to take away their friendship. Some of you, they're going to try to strip away your career, your reputation, your honor, your respect, your intelligence. And they're going to try to say, you don't know what you're talking about, Christian, you're an ignorant person. Some of you they will put to death. Verse 17, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your life. How is that possible? Not a hair on your head will perish even though some of you will die. It's because ultimately in the resurrection there is not one thing that is lost that Christ cannot restore. There is not one thing that when Christ resurrected from the dead he did not purchase back to the believer with our glorified bodies in a glorified heaven in a real earth that is perfect before God. Some of you they will put to death but not a hair of your head will perish. That is a promise for the believer. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. 
He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Here, David is talking about a bone being broken as like the very structural foundation of who you are. But Christ Jesus resurrects us up back in spirit. So not one of our bones is broken. All of the afflictions we endure are merely flesh wounds. There's nothing that we endure that this world can actually do to harm us in any mortal sense. Because only Jesus can harm us in that way. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And ultimately, this is also a prophecy. Christ Jesus is the one who fulfills this prophecy. In John chapter 19, verse 36, they pierce his side instead of breaking his legs on the cross. And it says, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And what, are you, what is he talking about there? Well, the sacrificial lamb, according to Exodus chapter 12, none of their bones could be broken for them to be a perfect sacrifice. Christ Jesus, though, was that perfect sacrifice. And so none of his bones were broken. By the very decree of God from old ages past, the sacrificial lamb would have no broken bones. And here David prophesies, he keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. That is the promise for the righteous. And then here again for the wicked. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. You see the contrast there. The wicked... Affliction will slay them. The righteous will be delivered from their affliction. The wicked will stand condemned before the judgment seat. The righteous will never be condemned because they have refuge in God. Not because they stand on their own righteousness. They're not righteous outside of themselves. They're righteous in the very hedge of God's protection. Again, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if we believe that to be true, if we've tasted that, how could we not share that with others? If you have tasted the goodness of God's salvation, how could you keep that for yourself? The exhortation there is simple. If you believe this psalm to be true, if you believe Scripture to be true in all that it teaches about both the righteous and the wicked, and you know people who don't trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation, it's on you to share the gospel with them. It's on you to go forth and to make disciples of all nations and to teach them to obey all that Christ Jesus taught. As a Christian, this is something that we have to wrestle with daily. Paul says he was always anxious about those who did not believe. It was weighing on his heart constantly, day and night. But the same Paul says he rejoices always in the Lord. So as Christians, we walk out in this tension of life. This is a reality. There is pain and suffering in this world, but yet the Lord is good and we should taste His goodness. And for unbelievers, there's a really real pain and suffering that is coming. Unless they throw themselves before Christ and trust in His righteousness, not their own. And as believers, we are called to go out into the world and to proclaim that message. As the shepherds did when they found out about Jesus, they go out into all of the surrounding countryside and proclaim that message. And you and I as believers, we go out into our workplaces, out into our relationships, out into our families even who don't know Christ. And we proclaim this truth. Not as an idea, not as one of many options or paths. There's only two paths here. There's not 20 ways to heaven and one way to hell. There's one way to heaven and many roads to hell. 
And all of the many roads to hell can be summed up in this, is that people who don't trust in God's goodness, people who don't trust in his righteousness, because they think that on their own they can make it. And that's what everything in this world is selling us today. Every person out there who's not a Christian sells you this lie, that with your good works you can weigh it up on the scales and be okay. That really people aren't actually bad innately. Really the world is the one that corrupts people. But we know that that's a lie. And if you believe that to be true, it is on you to share that with others. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word for us today. I want to thank you as well for the the shelter from the rain and for uh, the weather holding up as it has. God, your word is good and true and life-giving, but it's also real and it's raw and it's encouraging that it's like that. We don't serve a God who's of fairy tales and myths, but we serve one who created the world, who knows what it is and who knows the heart of man. And we take great comfort in the fact that you look into the heart of sinners and rebels and you look at them as lovely and you send your son down to die for them. And we trust in that confidence and we love it so much, Lord, that we want to share that with every single person who would hear it. And so I want to pray that not only would we know this to be true, that we would also have the confidence to go forth and to share it with others. Lord, by your Spirit, would you empower us to have bold faith that goes forth and proclaims you. And Lord, I want to pray for those of us who are discouraged, who are in seasons of dryness, who don't know what it is right now to taste the goodness of God. We know what it was like before, but right now we're just not tasting it. And Lord, I want to pray for those people that you would once again deliver them the goodness of tasting of you to know what the sweetness is of being in relationship with you, to be encouraged by the Spirit, Lord, that you would give them new life and breathe into them life and that you would sustain them and you would encourage them and, Lord, that we as your body would be able to share in that suffering as well so that we could all suffer well together for the sake of Christ Jesus. Lord, I want to ask and pray all of these things in your name. Amen.